Welcome, birders. This is Ed Pullen, your host on the Bird Banner Podcast, where birders talk birding. If you've been following birding online or elsewhere over the last year, you've heard a great deal of talk about diversity in birding. Diversity thought of as age diversity, gender diversity, sexual orientation diversity, race diversity, all sorts of ways that uh, we think of ourselves as. Another type of diversity in birding, though, is ability and skill set. I think of birders sometimes as a continuum. There are the casual backyard bird watchers. They might enjoy seeing birds in the backyard. They maybe can identify some of them. If they go to the beach, they'll see gulls, they'll see shorebirds, but they uh, are not uh, passionate about learning everything they can and identifying every bird they see. On the other end of the skill set are some of the guests that I've had on the podcast. Uh, And some of these birders are just almost superhuman in their ability to identify birds. Uh, They seem to be able to identify most birds they see. They know their call notes, their songs. They knew their field marks, identifying birds from photographs. They know bird behavior and movement so they can identify distant birds in flight. Uh, And they just have an extraordinary set of skills. And then most of us, probably most of the listeners to this podcast, fall somewhere in between those two uh, extremes of birding uh, passion and skill. I think of myself as being you know, reasonably competent, reasonably proficient. I can identify most of the birds I see in my home range with study. I can identify a lot of the birds I see when I travel. Uh, and with effort, I can learn most of the birds that I'm seeing in any given area. Uh, but I don't have that fabulous ability to just learn every bird call, learn every bird song, know every bird by its behavior, its movement. Uh, and you know, I'm satisfied with uh, being the bird that I am and continuing learning and enjoying and don't have uh, unrealistic expectations of moving to that tier of elite, spectacularly good birders. And there are all sorts of other places on that continuum. There are on-again, off-again birders. I think of my light wife, Kay. She was a very good birder when she was into birding, and there'd be times when she'd be birding a lot and she'd really get quite good. And there were times, maybe weeks or months at a time, when she just didn't get out birding a lot and it just wasn't in the forefront of her thinking. Uh, There are birders who are bird a lot and they're reasonably good. They're happy birding. They enjoy what they do. Uh, They may bird every day or a lot. They may bird less often. uh, And their skill set is modest. Uh, They have birds that they have to let go, maybe more than other people do without an identification, but they really love and enjoy it. So there are all sorts of skill levels that birders are at. I thought about this because my guest today is John Anderson. John is probably in the same, you know, a subset of birders that I am. He's a good birder. Uh, Gets out a lot, really loves it, uh, is quite quite good, but probably not, and and he would agree with you, probably not in that uh, tier of birders that are just like, whoa, how did they figure that out? How'd they know what that bird was? That's what most of us think. Well, anyway, uh, I think you'll enjoy hearing from John Anderson today. He is a easy guy to talk to, a storyteller, and I think you'll enjoy hearing John's birding story and our episode today. I hope that you do. Uh, So help me welcome John Anderson to the Bird Banner Podcast, episode number 94. John, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for joining me. 
It's great to be here, Ed. Thank you for inviting me. Yeah, you've been one of the people I've been going to invite for a long time and just uh, uh, didn't until now, so I'm excited. Uh, I, I don't see you all that often, but lately, since you've retired, I've been seeing you a lot more. I, besides our annual Okanagan trek that I usually see uh, you along with Shep on, I've seen you uh, out and around here more than, more than uh, it has been. Uh, how has retirement been treating you? Oh, I haven't missed a day in the office since I quit. Um, it's been great. I've had the opportunity to get out and bird around uh, the state quite a bit. I hadn't, uh, on the last few years, I had kind of slacked back on my birding, uh, your family and work and all that. And uh, by 19, or by 2018, it was just time to make a break and get back into the birding world and start enjoying myself a little bit. It sounds like you made the most of that first year. You made a peregrination is what you called it, I think, on your website. Yes, uh, I, I wasn't going to be able to afford a full-blown big year, you know, like the movie, like uh, a number of the other people in the country have done. So I ended up uh, truncating it a bit. Um, partly it was uh, as much as I could afford and as much as my wife would allow me to budget. And I still needed to see a lot of fairly common birds around the country. And I say needed to see, just I had been birding for over 40 years and there were a lot of the, like the ABA class one birds. I just had not been to, I hadn't been to the East Coast, you know, during the migration or at the appropriate amount or appropriate times or spent the right amount of time in the habitat to go see. And I just wanted to see them before too many years had passed by. Yeah, it's a, it's a good thing to do. You know, I have to say, going to new places and seeing the common birds in a place that uh, makes them uh, new or certainly new for a long time for you makes birding really exciting. Yes, and I had also uh, wanted to see just parts of the country. I like reading a lot of history, and it was time to see some of the great places in America, some of the historical sites. I went to Mount Rushmore to finally see a white-winged uh, subspecies of the dark-eyed junco. I'd never seen that mm -hmm. before. So it was kind of a combination trip. See family and friends, see the country, see the birds, and I did that. Yeah. Now, besides Mount Rushmore, what were some of your other favorite uh, stopovers in that year? Oh boy, uh, I spent a bit of time down south uh, and went to some of the Civil War battlefields, um, uh, Gettysburg, and just a number of the little sites. Uh, you go through uh, Georgia and Alabama, Tennessee, and every little crossroad has a signpost step that says, a skirmish was fought here on April 3rd, you know, 1864 between, you know, Sergeant so-and-so and Lieutenant so-and-so of, of each army. And, you know, no one was killed, but there's still bullet holes in the, 
uh, post office, something like that. So I kind of enjoyed that sort of local history. That is really cool. I remember going to Gettysburg and being boggled at the docents who were there. Uh, these are, uh, I think, full-time volunteers. Or full, I think it might be a job, full-time jobs by these, uh, you know, bona fide, terrific historians who just love Civil War history. And and uh, Kay and I were there. We uh, hired uh, a guy to ride in our car, I think, or we rode in his car, I can't remember, and take a three-hour trip around that basically started on day one of the battle and did to day two and day three. And then you'd be... and when right from this point, uh, General So-and-so looked over and saw this over there and that's a little round top and all these things. It was like wonderful, wonderful tour. I found the same thing. Uh, I boarded a uh, fairly well-packed tour bus uh, and uh, Kevin was a retired army colonel. He did just a great job with very, very detailed history, information and asides. He was uh, more well-informed and well-experienced than any college uh, history professor I took a course from. The man lived for history. Yeah, these people are incredibly passionate about that that topic. The fellow that I saw, he he was not old. He was you know maybe thirty-five, and he had he had studied, gotten his college degree in history with an emphasis in Civil War history, and had worked. I think as a volunteer for like five years to hone his skills before he finally got this job. I mean, it was his life's passion to have this job. It was really cool. And you also get to, when you do that sort of a tour, you can also uh, keep an eBird list as you oh, go. Ab absolutely. I mean, eBird lists are, you know, I look since, since I started using eBird, it's, you can look at your eBird lists and they are sort of your diary uh, of, you know, where you were on such and such a day and such and such year, I'll see what I was doing on eBird that day. Well, that's where I was. <laughs> when did you start using eBird, Ed? I want to say around 2012. Uh, I, I'd, I'd have to look at my list, but I think around then I started eBirding everything. You know, uh, I certainly put in some historical sightings to get my my ABA list and stuff up to speed. But uh, yeah, I think around 2012, it started becoming a routine thing for me to do. How about you? It was just about the same time. Uh, uh, Bill Twight, who I worked in the same agency with, uh, mm -hmm. and I bumped into each other somewhere out birding, and he admonished me for not using eBird. And frankly, I would just not gotten around to it. And once I got on it, I was hooked. It was just a very effective way to keep my own uh, birding lists, as well as a way to find out where birds are being seen and allow other people to see where I am seeing birds. Uh, it's a great tool, uh, good for the birding community. I'm frankly surprised that a fair number of uh, very good birders I know don't use it. It's a dwindling number, I have to say. There are a few dinosaurs still around, but most birders in, in our area use it, I think. Uh, there are certainly a couple of uh, very prominent birders who don't, but most people do. And even even back in the, in the early days of eBird, when you had to you know keep your list on a sheet of paper or whatever and then go home and enter it into the computer, it was no more work to do that than it was. I was entering into Avisys, which was a similar amount of work, and 
not nearly as useful a way to do it for me. And of course, with a phone app now, oh my goodness, it's so easy. So uh, if you are going to give uh, advice to me, because I am contemplating not doing a, a, a a full year of birding per se, but taking some chunks of time, maybe a month or a couple months and just meandering here and there. Uh, where are some of your favorite uh, you know, recommendations for routes? What I would uh, recommend is kind of setting out a, a goal or a series of goals. Uh, what do you want to see? Where do you want to go? You know, what appeals to you? But uh what I found out that I lacked was doing adequate preparation for the year. I had made a lot of plans for my peregrination year, but what I did not do uh, was to link some of the uh, sites together. Mm. I knew that I was going to go to the, uh, say, the Space Coast Bird Festival down in Florida. Right. Um, what I did not do was do the planning well do i want to go to georgia up to the great dismal swamp do i want to go to the carolinas do i want to just drop down to the everglades and kind of package some of the trips sure. and i did uh, quite a number of miles of backtracking uh, to make up for some of the lack of planning i'd done not that i disenjoyed any of the uh, of the birding I did, but I think that uh, a little bit more planning, a little bit more, well, just the preparation would have helped quite a bit. Uh, what I, some of the big uh, misses I had, uh, what I, my year was just trying to find uh, life species. Sure. Um, it wasn't to go out there and see 750 species in a year and, you know, try to beat the McQuaids at their game sort of thing. Yeah. Uh, but uh, some of the misses I had was just not paying attention to uh, eBird rarities, uh, not paying attention to the some of the tools that are out there. I drove right past the little uh, egret that was in uh, New Hampshire, oh. Maine or New Hampshire, wherever yeah. it was. It's been that in Maine year. for several years, yeah. I drove past that 20 miles uh, distance <laughs> from that bird. And once I was way past there, it was like, wait a minute, what did I just do? It was it be kind of funny. Part of your cup, or cu cup of coffee in the morning is to find out what the rarities within 100 miles are or something, yeah. At the very least, that's what one should do. Yeah. So, John, I'm going to get away from your uh, your first year after retirement and talk about your career. It sounds like you worked for the Department of Fish and Wildlife on their sam salmon projects. I'm not sure exactly what that all means. But those are not uh, unrelated to birding. I mean, habit, repairing habitat issues, Caspian turn, colony issues, those sorts of things. Tell me about your work and how that uh, might play into your birding at all. Well, sir, I hired on with uh, the old State uh, Department of Fisheries back before fisheries and the Department of Wildlife uh, were merged. And I was working mostly in uh, salmon harvest management early on in the career a lot of which involved uh, the commercial salmon harvest by 
uh, gill netters and pursainers, other net fishermen here in Puget Sound. Part of that work uh, had me out on the water just all through the salmon season from July through about Thanksgiving. Uh, mm. We did a lot of monitoring the fisheries, uh, looking for uh, salmon bycatch. Uh, the commercial fishermen were uh, mostly targeting on uh, the sockeye and pink salmon up in the San Juans. And in Puget Sound, it was mostly uh, the chum salmon. And there were disagreements between the uh, managers of the uh, sport and commercial industries uh, as to how much bycatch of coho and chinook would be allowed in those fisheries. So we were out there ground truthing our fisheries. And when you spend a lot of time on the water, uh, you see a lot of you know, a lot of the marine birds that are out there. Um, when the marbled merlet was uh, listed as a ESA threatened species, it became critical for the uh, commercial fishery to uh, give a very critical look at the bycatch implications of that. Um, the University of Washington Sea Grant program uh, under Dr. Ed Melvin uh, worked with the Department of Fish and Wildlife, worked with the uh, uh, gillnet industry and with the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service uh, to do a lot of monitoring and uh, studies to see how they could reduce almost to zero the uh, catch of marbled merlets in the net fishery. And by doing so, they also reduced uh, by catch of the you know non-ESA species, uh, common murs and rhinoceros oclets and western grebes, that sort of thing. And it made quite a difference. Um, I won't say it was a dirty fishery, but it cleaned up considerably after the marbled merlet was uh, listed as ESA threatened. So that was, a, that was a very good success story for the agencies as well as the industry. John, were you involved in the, in the discussions or projects behind the relocation of the Caspian Turn colony in the, in the Columbia River? That was, that was kind of a big news for a while there. I was not involved in that. Uh, at the time, I had gone from uh, working with the Puget Sound Sporting Commercial Fishery, and I had moved into uh, working with the like the rainbow trout fishery, the uh, native uh, game species, well, it's native game and non-game species here in the state, and was uh, also doing some ESA paperwork, uh, but had little to do with the uh, common turn relocation. But I, you know, being a birder as well as a uh, fish biologist, I was keeping my eye on the uh, relocation efforts down there. The Corps of Engineers uh, was quite concerned with the common common turns, excuse me, Caspian turns. The Corps of Engineers and other agencies were quite concerned with the Caspian turns, uh, the main colony of which had uh, located itself on I believe it was Rice Island, 
on the lower Columbia River, which was, if I'm, my memory serves correctly, was about 10 miles above Astoria and Ilwaco. Mm-hmm. And the main concern with that was as the salmon and steelhead smolts are out-migrating uh, from the river out into the ocean, uh, the terns were focusing their their fishery <laughs> on, on those smolts. And they were taking a fairly high number, almost 80, over 80% of the catch was salmon and steelhead mm-hmm. smolts. Uh, to feed their young. This was not tenable with the efforts to uh, restore or protect the uh, threatened and endangered salmon and steelhead runs on the Columbia. So the uh, agencies made an effort to discourage the terns from nesting on Rice Island and uh, relocate down to East Sand Island, which was down below Astoria. What that did was uh, it gave the terns an opportunity to uh, go out and catch for their young uh, more bait fish, herring and anchovy and that sort of thing. And it reduced the uh, catch of salmon and steelhead smolts uh, quite a bit, you know, from 80% of the the numbers of fish they brought back to the young to around 30, if I recall correctly. So pretty big impact. And it sounds like uh, despite some false starts that it worked out pretty well. Yes, I believe so. Um, the Caspian Turn Colony has is here in the Pacific Northwest is the largest in the world. You know, the Caspian Turn is a, is found all around the world, but we have the largest colony anywhere. I didn't and know that. That's it, cool. Yeah. And it has moved around since I started birding, oh, 40 years ago, to the point where, um, well, you probably remember when the colony was mostly on the slag pile at the Asarco smelter there in Ruston in I Tacoma. Know ha- I know there used to be a lot there. And we still have some turns, I think, that nest around here, but not any big numbers. Not anything like that. Uh, the colony had uh, moved um, from the coast. I believe it was in Grays Harbor for a while. It moved here into Puget Sound. Uh, I think for a while the bulk of the birds were down in California. Don't I don't recall where, but uh, they moved back to the Columbia River. And, you know, these birds are finding for themselves uh, an easy-to-access prey base so that they can feed their young, and they're going to go to the best and easiest place to catch fish. With our river management and our fishery management, we had made it very easy for them in recent years to locate there on the Columbia River, and I believe that they're doing a good job down there of keeping the birds and our ESA listed fish separated a bit. The birds will tell us whether we're doing it right. Sounds like uh, these Caspian terns are, are not moving their colony is not a new thing to them. So they probably pulled it off just fine. John, I'm going to switch again topics. How did you get into birding? You've been birding 
40 plus years. So you didn't start as an old man. When, when did you get started and how did it happen? Well, I grew up in a farm country in the Willamette Valley, and my family was always outdoor oriented. Uh, you know, uh, family went on tent camping vacations all around the Pacific Northwest. You know, dad went hunting and fishing and rock hounding, and we were always along on that. And frankly, farmers and uh, people working in the woods pay attention to, you know, what's going on around them. There, there's a lot of uh, farmers and uh, timber fellers out there that pay attention to what birds they're seeing. Um, and be, just being a kid out in the edge of town, I wasn't uh, a suburbanite. I wasn't quite a farm kid, but I was right at the edge. Uh, spend a lot of time looking for pheasant and killdeer nests and, uh, you know, we had birdhouses and things like that. So I always had an interest in birds. When I was in high school, my counselor said, well, what do you want to do? And being the usual 17-year-old, I said, I don't know. And he said, well, what do you, you know, what do you like to do? Well, I like to go hunting and fishing. And the poor man rolled his eyes and dug in his drawer and pulled out a brochure on the fisheries and wildlife program at Oregon State. Well, that campus was 12 miles from my back door. So, uh, you know, easiest effort, I uh, applied and went to Oregon State in fisheries and wildlife. One of my courses was... Uh, ornithology, and I had gotten involved in the Student Fish and Wildlife Club. Our club members were going to a uh, student fish and wildlife conference in College Station, Texas, of all places. Ooh. And the professor that was teaching the ornithology class was our advisor, and he said, well, everyone who's taking this course, you keep a bird list, you'll get an extra five uh, points extra credit. Well, back in the day, I needed every extra credit point I could get. So I started keeping a bird list uh, in 1976 as we cruised through you know, the West Coast. We went from Oregon down through Nevada, Utah, New Mexico, and... It was quite the trip. I really enjoyed it and started keeping the bird lists at that time. That was, I wish I would have kept all of the uh, bird lists I kept back in the day or could find them anyway. It's, I had list after list after list of places I'd gone or, you know, birding trips I'd taken with friends, all on sheets of paper somewhere. Yeah, that may or may not exist. John, I have to say, I've heard a lot of uh, stories about how people got first into birding, uh, really into birding, and being bribed into it. This, that's a first, I have to say. You're the first person I know, I know who has uh, responded to bribery as an incentive to become a birder. Well, I can be bribed with a lot of things. <laughs> I would take a, a, a can of beer if somebody wanted to go birding with me. I'll drive them. 
Okay, well, that's a good deal. I might take you up on that sometime. I, I have to say, it always is fun when when your group and uh, Ken and my group you know meet up at the end of each day on a Okanagan trip to compare notes. Uh, how long have you been doing that uh, North Central Washington winter trip? Probably about five years, maybe six is all. Um, okay. Shep Thorpe had been running that trip for a number of years, and I signed up for it on his main trip when he was mm-hmm. only taking about 12 to 18 people right? Um, back in pre-COVID days, of course. And following that, uh, he start, or he was always running a, quote, what he called a scouting trip. So mm-hmm. um, not wanting to take a spot on his main trip, I started going on a scouting trip with uh, him and with Scott Ramos. Mm-hmm. And I've really enjoyed it. You know, that gives my year birding list uh, quite a little jump to go over and get those uh, nice central Washington wintering birds. Bumps bumps the trip up quite a bit, or the species list from that trip up quite a bit. And I really enjoy being over in that part of the country anyway. I do a, a breeding bird survey route over in central Washington, Oh, two of them, one near Ritzville, one through the Odessa area in central Washington every June. And like getting over there that time of year as well with, uh, you know, flowers and bloom and, you know, the smell of sagebrush in the air. The other extreme of weather in that area, uh, our freeze-a-thon in January or February can be pretty cold, and I bet that can be pretty warm. You're taking advantage of a great opportunity to get out with two really good birders when you go with those guys. My entire birding career has been blessed with uh, being able to associate with good birders. You know, in comparison, I consider myself a moderately skilled birder. Um, even after all these years, um, you know, I bumped into uh, Bill Twight down in Lewis County last week. Uh, we were looking for the uh, lesser blackback gull that had been found oh. down there. I was there that same day. Yeah. It always amazes me. I went through that uh, flock of gulls oh, for nearly 45 minutes before Bill showed up, and I was getting kind of frustrated that I wasn't finding the bird that just had to be in it. Bill sets up, and five minutes later, he goes, oh, there it is. After he had pointed me in the right direction, it's, well, of course, that's right where it is. So, Yeah, I, that same Funny story, I uh, I birded that field the same day and fortunately got on the, the lesser blackback without difficulty, but I knew they'd been seeing, you know, good to go with herring gulls and Iceland gulls and some hybrid gulls. And I, I looked that flock over and I looked that flock and I found a herring gull and, and that's about what I found for other than, you know, just our Olympic gull sort of hybrid uh, mishmash. And uh, Bill was there maybe an hour or so different. So I know he looked at the same gulls that I did. I think he had five herring gulls, three or four Iceland gulls, uh, a Western by, uh, excuse me, a glaucous wing by Iceland hybrid. And I'm like, holy mackerel, how did he do that? <laughs> there are a number of birders that we bump into that are much better birders than we are. Kudos to them. So true. So true. <laughs> Uh, yeah, I uh, on 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 the east side trip this year. Will Brooks w- went with us, 
Yes. Oh my goodness. Uh, it was, you know, with Ken and, uh, and Bruce were in two cars and I, I have been immunized and will got COVID testing. So felt pretty good about that. Ken and Bruce and I are thinking, do we ever find any birds on this trip? Cause we'll find every bird on the trip. Seemed like every single bird on the trip he's found. And I reassured them. I says, you know, we would have found these birds, but we'll just find some 10 seconds before we see them. I'm just trying to make us feel good. You know, some of them, that was true. And some of them, we just would have gone right by. But uh, he is, yeah, some people just have a, a level of uh, sensory awareness and skill that just uh, puts us to shame. Uh, Shep and I and Scott were quite uh, chagrined that we did not find the flock of 2000 uh, snow bundings that you had. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I'm sure that's a matter of luck. You know, that that was, it was no skill to finding those. We're driving along and said, oh, my goodness, look at all those birds. Yeah, that's, I really enjoyed that trip. That's, uh, it's well to get out there. And I think a lot of the West Side birders really benefit from getting over into, you know, out of our wet side of the Cascades area and just seeing uh a part of the state we usually don't get into. I certainly found it fulfilling on my peregrination year to see part of the country that um, I normally wouldn't see. And part of it's uh, seeing the birds, part of it's seeing the country, and a lot of it is uh, just meeting other birders out there. There are some uh, wonderful folks all across the country. Uh, people are running you know, weekly or monthly bird walks that, the, you know, the average birders invited to, similar to what we do, say, at uh, Thaler Wetlands or Nisqually Refuge. And you can get in with those people and they find out you're from away and they treat you like a honored guest. Try to get you on that you know, a warbler that's so common to them that you never see out here. Yeah, it is fun to, local knowledge will take you a long ways. John, I'm going to I'm gonna talk a little bit about banding. As a part of your work and as you, of your birding, you've done some bird banding, and that's something that I've never really gotten involved with. So it's been a little intimidating to me to think of, you know, handling birds, and putting rings on their legs and that sort of thing. Uh, what's your experience, Beth? Well, uh, when I was going to college at Oregon State, I uh, got some work-study uh, jobs with the local wildlife refuge down there. Uh, they call it now the Willamette Valley uh, Wildlife Refuge Complex. Uh, back then, it was William Finley, uh, Basket Slough, and Ankeny National Wildlife Refuges, all run out of the uh, William Finley office. And they had a quota of ducks they had to band every year as part of the nationwide effort to band, you know, X thousand uh, wintering mallards mostly. And there were also uh, quite a few studies going on with the Oregon Fish and Wildlife and the U.S. Fish and Wildlife through the Cooperative Wildlife Research Unit out of Corvallis. Uh, to ban the dusky Canada geese at the time. And so I, getting paid $2.45 an hour, got to go out and band a lot of waterfowl. And that was a lot of fun and keeping track of, you know, where the birds were going, being seen. 
a lot of the, re well, on the ducks, all the recoveries, of course, were harvested in the hunt you know, subsequent mm -hmm. years. Sure. Really enjoyed that. Uh, I later got an opportunity to uh, work for six or eight months down at uh, Malheur National Wildlife Refuge in Southeast Oregon, which is just a gem of a place to go birding. Absolutely. And one of the biologists down there at the time was uh, C.D. Littlefield, who wrote the book literally on the birds of Malheur uh, Wildlife Refuge. He'd been down there for probably 20 years at the time I worked there in the mid-80s. And one of C.D.'s jobs was to do the songbird banding there at the headquarters. Well, C.D. was busy with uh, Sandhill Crane Study and something else he was working on, no doubt. He always had three or four irons in the fire. And he said, John, you're going to do the uh, mist netting and banding. It's like, okay, I've banded ducks. How do I band something that only weighs, you know, 14 ounces or 14 grams. <laughs> and, uh, so he, he got me going, uh, showed me how to use a mist net, uh, you know, safely handled the birds and put a itty bitty little bird band, aluminum band on a, you know, a sparrow's leg. And it was a lot of fun. I enjoyed that all spring and summer there, banding the uh, songbirds. And at the end of my job, I asked him, well, would you sponsor me to, or at least put in a good word for me? I'm going to apply for my own uh, federal bird banding permit. And he did so, and I got my permit, and I still have it to this day. I haven't done a lot of banding in the last four or five years. I need to start doing so, or the nice people in the government will take my permit away. But uh but it's quite enjoyable. You learn things about birds that you really don't see or you don't pick up just looking at them through binoculars. Their molt, you know, how, how they develop as they uh, grow from a fledgling to a full adult bird, how healthy they are. Uh, you can tell how fat they are just by, you know, looking through the feathers on the breast Mm -hmm. uh, and you get an idea of whether or not the birds are doing well or poorly, you know, what their food source is, that sort of thing. Uh, I really enjoy it. Um, there's uh, some species, you know, do well for kind of remote recoveries. You know, swans and geese, you see birds with the plastic neck collars mm -hmm. um, on Caspian terns, some of the shorebirds, you know, they have the numbered colored leg bands. Right. And it's always fun to try to read those and send a, you know, send your report in and find out where the bird was banded and how old it was. Smaller birds like warblers and sparrows, unless you can afford expensive radio tagging equipment, you pretty much need to handle the bird to get that information. So means one person banding the bird, someone else capturing it or finding where it's hit a window or take it away from a cat or something. Yeah. 
so yeah, I, I really enjoyed that. Um, well, it sounds like an experience that uh, uh, I know a lot of people really enjoy, and I've thought about doing it for some reason, haven't uh, taken that path. Uh, John, what do you see going forward as a birder? Uh, you know, you've got more time on your hands now. You're still in good health. Uh, what, what sort of bucket list things or, you know, uh, gosh, I really want to do that. What's, what's looking forward for you? Well, my first and foremost uh, bucket list that got quashed last year with the COVID might go this year. Uh, we're still kind of holding it in abeyance is I've wanted to go on John Pushok's trip to Attu. Oh. Uh, Attu is, you know, one of the you know, holy grails of the crazy, you know, birder with more uh, time than brains. And uh, John's been running that trip, oh, for a number of years now. You fly to ADAC and catch a boat and steam out to Atu for three days, spend around a week, you know, ferrying yourself ashore and looking for basically Russian species <laughs> that uh, yeah. blow across the water. And somehow I, uh, in all my reading, I got a bug in my bonnet about Atu and I'd, I'd really like to do that. I think the other place I'd like to see is uh, one of these winters go to Hokkaido and just look at the spectacle of the uh, sea eagles and the white-tailed eagles uh, that come in to feed on the salmon runs there on the North Island in Japan. And somehow I got intrigued with that years ago and would love to see that. Other places I've done a little birding uh, in Australia and New Zealand. And I know my wife would like to go back to New Zealand just because it's a wonderful place. They speak English and uh, kind of. And uh, <laughs> I'd like to go to the North Island, just see what it looks like. Maybe back to Europe. I've uh, visited there a time or two and not really gotten a chance to do any in-depth birding around there. So, Well, you've got a few trips uh, on hand. For listeners who are interested in the, the Atu experience with John Pushak, John was a guest. I write a blog post for each, uh, each podcast episode, so I'll make sure in the blog post I uh, make a, a link to the episode with John Pushak where you can hear a lot more about birding Atu. I think that would be great. I know uh, some years John's concerned about filling the boat for the trip, so... <laughs> Somebody else out in uh, podcast land might really flash on that and have an opportunity to go. Yeah, there were a number of years where it was not possible to bird out to after they stopped uh, staying in the old uh, Coast Guard station there. So now that you can do it from a boat, that's another way to go about it. I have to say, with my uh, Maldemur uh, concerns, I think that's outside my... Uh, scope of willing to, willingness to suffer, but uh, it sounds like a trip of a lifetime. I would never wish seasickness on anyone. Yeah, yeah, well, I wouldn't either. I've learned to, I've learned to manage, but I don't know, three days on a boat to get there sounds like 
maybe more than I'm up for. We'll see. I could change my mind, but uh, I don't know. Anyway, John, thanks so much for being a guest today. I try to wrap up with a couple of uh, questions. How can birders reach out to you if they want to uh, get a hold of you? I'm certainly glad to uh, put my email out. Uh, if you put it on the yeah, blog I'll page. Put it, I'll put it in the blog page uh, You know, in a way that you won't get spammed. I've got my peregrination blog that's over a year behind and I need to finish that out and I will probably revamp that into a more you know a more current and uh, change it more into a natural history rather than a what I did last summer sort of blog page. Well I'll make sure I uh, put a link to that too. I think there's a contact a button on that so people can reach you there too. And I think I think you have a face I think you have a Facebook account too. So I'll try to put links to those sorts of things so people can reach out to you. Oh great, thanks. Good. Well, thanks so much, John, for being my guest today. I really appreciate having you on. It's always fun to talk with friends on the show. And I think a lot of the local birders will love to hear your story and, and hear what you have to say. I want to say thanks again and uh, until next time. I'll catch you out there somewhere. Well, thank you too, Ed, and thank you for uh, doing this podcast. I've loved to uh, listen to it and listen to your interviews of people from all around the country. So it, it is fun. Thanks again, John. Take care. You too. Bye. Thanks for listening. As always, I'll publish a blog post on birdbanner.com with more information on the topics that John and I talked about today. Uh, there's also information in the podcast notes on whatever uh, podcast feed you use. And please think about leaving a rating and review on your podcast feed. I really appreciate the feedback and it helps me gain traction and subscribers there. And by the way, make sure you do subscribe so you don't miss any future episodes. I've got some really fun guests coming up and I try to have fun with each episode. So if you subscribe, you won't accidentally miss any of my episodes. But anyway, thanks again for listening and good birding. Good day. Good day.